My guest this week is Ruth McCartney. As a young girl, she would sit around the kitchen table with her mother, Angie, helping to deal with millions of fan mail for her stepbrother, Paul, and earn herself a little bit of pocket money. It was a case of keeping it all in the family. Her mother had married Paul's father, Jim, after a short courtship in 1964, and Ruth found herself with a front row seat to Beatlemania. It was just another day when the other Beatles would pop in, or Jimi Hendrix arrive unannounced on your doorstep. Today, Ruth runs creative digital agency McCartney Multimedia with her husband Martin and her mother. Their first client was David Cassidy. They built his first website, and he became a good, close and trusted friend. Ruth herself studied piano, guitar and dance before becoming a pop sensation in Russia. In our entertaining and compelling conversation, Ruth recalls her memories of meeting Paul for the first time, how she met David in an elevator and immediately took him home to meet her mother. She talks about their friendship and explains why she felt he never got the industry accolades he deserved. Please welcome Ruth McCartney on the David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. It's a long way, isn't it, sitting here today from the family kitchen table in Liverpool, replying to sacks of mail from Beatles fans. Yes. Oh, gosh. I mean, that was, you know, sort of how I earned my pocket money when, when my <laughs> mum, Angie, married um, Paul's dad, Jim McCartney, in 1964. I, don't, I was only four years old and uh, almost five, three, three months shy of my fifth birthday. And we were getting all this crazy fan mail for the Beatles. And in those days, you used to get two... Um, mail deliveries you get one in the morning or one around noon and then a late one about five-ish and so they used to bring sacks and sacks of mail and leave it outside on the front porch and eventually bit by bit you know we'd bring it in and sort it into shoe boxes and that's how I learned geography actually I learned because we had a long um, dining table and the dining room window faced uh, west towards Wales and so we used to put all the American and um you know, Western mail over there. And then the Japanese stuff was on the East end of the table. And then of course, Australia and New Zealand went down under. <laughs> so I think, uh, that's how I got my original geography lessons was helping my mum sort out Beatle fan mail into cardboard boxes. Uh, the whole dining room got taken over. We had boxes under the table and on top of the sideboard. And then of course we'd, we'd sort them out, open the letters, staple the envelopes to the letters and then drive them through the tunnel to Frida Kelly, who is, has actually just written, she was uh, Brian Epstein's secretary and the fact Beatles fan club founder and secretary. Uh, she's sort of like my Auntie Frida. And we've seen a lot of her in the last few years. She's got a, a documentary out called Good Old Frida, and my mum is featured in it. And um, Frida just very kindly wrote the foreword to my mum's new book, which is called Here, There and Everywhere, which is a, an interactive QR code printed tour guide of all of the Beatley spots in Liverpool, London, Hamburg, New York and LA for when we can all travel again. It's a, fun, it's, it's a cute little book. Came up with it six weeks ago and five weeks later, there it is on Amazon. We, we put it all up and did it and my husband designed the cover and mum wrote it and I spell checked it and did all the links. And my husband's built a hundred and... I think it's 169 destinations. So he's built 169 matching web pages on McCartney.com. So when you scan the code in the book, you get taken to a web page with Google Map links and tour guide links and videos and all kinds of stuff. So it's 
it's what we're calling smart book technology and we're, we're trying to uh, establish a patent for or a patent as you would, we would say for it at yeah. the moment even if the book sort of you know books tend to go out of date what all we do is keep the web page that the code lands on up to date and so it's always current no doubt you've been asked this a million times but has the mccartney surname been a blessing to you or a curse both i mean it's you know when i was going to school in heswell um and then subsequently west kirby I would get the, oh, do you want to come to my birthday party? Can I be friends with you? So that I would return the favour and invite these girls back to my birthday parties in case Paul was home. But then, you know, it's it's obviously opened doors in business now as, as oh God, I can't believe I'm 60. <laughs> you know, we own McCartney.com. We own a bunch of McCartney brands. And with, you know, Paul still out there rocking, he's just released a new album yesterday and uh, Stella doing the fashion and marrying photography, you know, it's sort of become a, it's extended from music and then Linda and Heather's vegetarian foods. It's a lifestyle brand. And so I'm very lucky to, you know, be able to keep up our part of it with Mrs. McCartney's teas and Mrs. McCartney's wines and my mum's books and our multimedia business. So I think, you know, people, if they look at the value of the brand McCartney, they automatically associate it with longevity, nostalgia, good quality, all those things you want in a brand. So in that way, it's an absolute blessing. Mm. Growing up, having girls be jealous of me, it was a curse, I must say. Can we go back to those early days in Liverpool when you were four years old? Your mother's a widow and in a very short space of time, she's introduced to Jim, Paul's father, and they get married. Yes, so they met in August of 1964 and they married on the 26th of November, but they only met each other four or five times and it was always chaperoned in those days. It was all very old fashioned. But you know, he was 62, she was 34. They were both widowed. Jim, aka dad, who became dad, needed someone really to sort of run the household, keep him company, be a companion, deal with the fans, keep the crazies at, at bay. Because, you know, the fans used to come and steal handfuls of gravel from the driveway. They'd climb over the gate and steal anything they could. I mean, the, you know, the license plates would disappear off the car twice a month and somebody had to go and deal with all of that and answer the fan mail. And so it wasn't a really very romantic proposal at the beginning. He said, you know, I need all of these things and you need security for your kid because I just had my um, kidney removed. Uh, in the uh, May of that year. So, you know, I was like a sickly child and didn't know what I was going to need in the way of, you know, private medical or whatever. And so they sort of struck up a thing and she said, well, you know, I can come and live here and be your secretary and bring the, bring Ruth, but people will only gossip in the village and she's got to go to school. So if you're offering to get married, let's give that a crack and see what happens. And they, of course, fell madly in love for 12 and a half years until he died. It was a real, a real sort of, you know, June and December love story. It was a really beautiful thing. I heard a story some years ago where the night he proposed, Paul happened to ring the yeah, house. Well, yeah, um, my dad had spoken to Paul that in the afternoon and said, I'm invited, I'm send, sending a taxi for Angela. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite her over tonight and see where the future takes us, kind of, you know, paraphrasing. But um, he said, you know, ring me afterwards and I'll let you know how it's going. So, of course, um, my mum went in we, into the living room, put me to bed, and um, they were making dinner and, you know, she said, oh, you know, let's go and while the chicken's cooking, whatever it was, let's go and play the piano because they both had that in common. 
and um, she was playing the piano and he walked up behind her, put his hands on his shoulders and said, I'm going to ask you a serious question. And she said, the answer is yes. He said, I haven't asked you the bloody question yet. So then they worked out the details. And of course, about 10 minutes later, the phone rang and it was Paul. And um, he, my dad went to the phone in the hall under the stairs in the little phone cupboard. My mom heard him say, yes, yes, she is. Yeah, yes, yes, I have. Yes, yes, we are. Oh, okay, see you in about four hours. So, you know, the questions were obviously, is she there? Have you asked her and is she going to? And so Paul said, oh, well, I'll jump in the car and come up from London. And in those days, the, the motorway didn't connect. You had to get off at Brown Hills near, near Birmingham and go all around the bloody Birmingham ring roads and get lost and then get back on, you know, um, the M5, I think it was. The M1 didn't connect to the M5. And then there was no M62. So you got off in Chester and went all through the Wirral and the roundabouts. And so Paul came in through the, he drove in through the garage. Jim went out and opened the um, gates and switched all the lights off. So Paul could drive into the driveway straight in the garage and, you know, with his lights off. And mum was making a cup of tea in the kitchen. It was about 10 o'clock at night, I think. And Paul came in through the side passageway through the garage and stuck his hand out. And he said, oh, oh, hello, you must be Anne. Nice to meet you. I'm Paul. And she's like, yeah, I think I know that. <laughs> Got that bit. <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. You know? So you would have met him the following day, did you, for the first time? No, actually. So so um, they all went in and had a cup of tea, and I think Ange made him cheese and tomato butty or whatever. And he said, well, where's the baby? Can I meet Ruth? Is she here? And Ange said, well, she's asleep. He said, oh, go and get her. Wake her up. Oh. So, of course, Ange came in and woke me up in the little jammies and took me down and sat me on Paul's lap. And I'm rubbing my eyes and brought into the light, you know, like a bloody mosquito <laughs> or, a, or a butterfly in the light. And um, she sits me on Paul's lap and I said, oh, hang on, I know you. And then the most embarrassing thing in the world, because my cousin Geraldine had a Wendy house at the bottom of the garden in Liverpool. And somebody had found like a half a roll of Beatles wallpaper and that was what she had on the wall. So I opened my eyes, recognized this fellow and go, oh, I know you, you're on my cousin's wallpaper. <laughs> much to massive amounts of cringing from everyone in the room you know mm -hmm. and, um, then I said do you want to see my scar I just had a big operation I pulled up my pajamas and showed him my 210 stitches that they managed to put on a four-year-old mm. and um, he said oh what's that and he said oh Ringo's got a scar in his tummy he had his appendix removed and it was just you know a normal conversation once I got over the fact where I knew him from the wallpaper and um, at least it wasn't his face on a wanted poster in the post office window, you know. It no, be. quite. <laughs> so was life a little bit bewildering for you as a, as a little girl? At the very beginning, of course, you know, I never went back to the flat in Kirby. Um, my mum went home. My grandmother, Edie, came over the next day in a taxi to sort of settle me in. And mum went home. She went to work, of course, at uh, her day job. I think she was still at Pure Chemicals then. I can't remember what. Yeah, no, I think she was. She was either that, the Concrete Utilities Company or Rio Tinto Zinc. She worked at all of them. She went back and handed her two-week notice in at work, which she went on and finished. Went back to the flat and packed everything up. And I think my cousin Peter drove over in his van with Ange. And that I literally, the night we went to Rembrandt for dinner, I never went home again to the little flat in Kirby on the trading estate. Mm -hmm. And so I was still too young to go to school because I was only four and this is November. So I was going to start right after the Christmas holidays. And so we went to the local Heswell County Primary, the Puddydale, they used to call it. 
And, um, you know, mum and dad had a meeting with the headmaster and said, well, how are we going to handle it? So he said, oh, don't worry. It'll be perfectly normal. Everyone will treat her just like a normal child. So Mr. Kitching, his name was, in his wisdom, the day, I, day before I started in the school assembly, pulled all the kids in and said, now, there's a very special child coming to this school. And she's, her brother's very famous, but you're to leave her alone. You're not to bully her. You're not to make a fuss of her. And then gave him a list of what not to do. You're not to steal her lunch. You're not to pee in her wellies. You're not to whip the name tags out of her coat. You're not to cut bits of her hair off. So what do you think they did? All of that. All of the above. Mm-hmm. On and on and on. Yeah, my second day in school, I went to put my wellies on to go home. And they were already wet inside some little boy oh. whose sister was a fan of the Rolling Stones, decided to have a wee in my wellies. No. Nice. Oh, and you probably lost things like books. books. Yeah. And oh, my uniform hats. with the name. Hats, coats. Oh. Yeah. My little brown Mac went missing about once a month. Yeah. Because yeah. it had a name tag in it. The lunchbox, the Tupperware, green Tupperware lunchbox with the name and felt pen on the top. Yeah. All of that. Mm-hmm. And you obviously ga- gained an awful lot of good friends. Oh, very quickly. Mm. Yes. Mm. I was five, uh, or going to be five. And all of a sudden I had these 10 and 11 year old birthday party invitations, lots of them. Then I moved from the Puttydale, they opened a brand new school right at the bottom of our road, Gayton County Primary. So I moved there. And by that time, sort of the kids in Heswell, which is still a relatively small town village, they got used to the fact that, you know, we all existed and we were those folks on, you know, on the uh, Beetle Watch. And so Gayton County Primary wasn't that bad. Plus, by then I was about eight, nine, ten years old and I could stand for, you know, stand up for myself a bit more. Mm. And then I went to West Kirby Grammar School and, you know, there's always a bit of a flurry and a fuss when you first go somewhere. But Julian Lennon was actually going to Caldy uh, Boys School. I was West Kirby County Grammar for Girls and he went to Caldy for Boys, which was only about three or four miles apart, I think. And so Julian, of course, took the brunt of the local heat. The heat had worn off me somewhat by then. But, you know, it teaches you, it's a good lesson. It teaches you at the very beginning to sort the wheat from the chaff and know who your mates are and who's got your back and who just wants to come to the Christmas party. That was an early lesson to learn. It was, and it was a pretty valuable one, I have to say. Still holds me in good stead 50-odd years later. You mentioned about the postman calling yeah. twice a day with thousands and thousands of letters what were the fans sending then were they sending gifts and long letters and were they asking for personal items in return all of the above i mean some yeah. of them were just the, the envelopes were what used to amaze us uh some of them would come all the way from japan and just be addressed to beetle paul england <laughs> and it would find our house and then you'd open it and the letter would be beautifully handwritten in kanji in Japanese and none of us could read it. So I have no idea what half of them were asking. Romanian, Pakistani, I mean, you name it, we got letters in it, you know. Yeah. I had the, I must say, out of, out of our uh, primary school, I had the best stamp collection of any kid on the block. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, they used to, the American fans were actually the ones that were a bit more, what I would call marketing savvy. Um, you know, they would, <laughs> there's one girl who, she would repeatedly send different flavors of chewing gum, cinnamon or juicy fruit or double mint or whatever. And she'd say, um, if Paul, would Paul unwrap the wrappers? Um, because when I braid them together, you send them, he chews the chewing gum. 
makes a big gumball, you send it back to me and send me the wrappers and I'll braid them together and it will be six foot two and a half, which is exactly how tall Paul is. I was like, (laughs) okay, get some mental health (laughs) counselling. Sorry, but yeah, you've got a bit of an issue. Um, And then they would send pillowcases, would Paul sleep on this and send it back, don't wash it. (laughs) You know, things like that. Did you, you and your mother actually send items back? Oh God, yeah. We used to we used to answer every every letter that we could, and those that we didn't know what to do with, um, Auntie Frida Kelly would would deal with, um, and yeah, we would send. It's actually George Harrison's mum, Louise Harrison, started it. So she used to go to Paddy's Market in Liverpool, and buy you know huge amounts of shirt buttons or old seconds of towels or sheets or whatever. And she and Harry would sometimes come over and visit my dad. Harry liked to watch the horse racing with Jim. And we'd sit around with pinking shears and cut these um, sheets and towels up and send them out in little two inch squares and saying, oh, you know, this was, uh, we were gonna throw this out, but this is a towel from our house or, and then she got wise. Louise knew somebody who worked at Atlantic uh, Telegraph and Telephone, which later became AT&T. And she used to get her hands on these um, like tele- very thin telephone wires that looked like guitar and bass strings. And we'd sit around with pliers and cut them up into three inch bits and say, oh, you know, Paul was tuning his bass this morning and this fell <laughs> off. Either. This one broke. Here's a bit of string. And so we tried to send them. So even if it was fake, we tried to send them some memento, you know. Priceless. And somebody yeah. somewhere will still have this. Oh, I'm sure it's probably for sale on eBay for 40,000 quid. <laughs> So living at home, life was quite normal for you to have John, George or Ringo call in. John, more than any of them, George and Ringo, of course, would if they'd come to Liverpool, if they had the time, they would generally spend it with their parents. Um, The most times we would see John and Ringo was when we'd go down to visit Paul in London in St. John's Wood and there'd be, you know, a Sunday lunch or a birthday or something you know a reason to get together at Ringo's house or what have you but John of course when he started to make some money they he and Cynthia moved down to London and he moved his auntie Mimi from Mendix on Menlove Avenue he moved her down he bought her a beautiful house at Poole in Dorset and so he when he came home to Liverpool he had no sort of homestead so sometimes he would stay with if my brother Mike McGee was away touring with Scaffold or weekend, John would come and stay with us in the guest room or in Mike's room. And so we, I, I saw a lot more of John than the other two growing up because he would be a, a sometimes house guest, you know? Yeah. Wasn't there one day when Jimi Hendrix turned up unexpected? Yeah, he um, he turned up in a van that was some, like something out of Cheech and Chong. They opened the doors and the smoke poured out. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, why am I smelling ch- skunk and patchouli? <laughs> <laughs> Of course, not knowing what that was, because all of Paul's friends used to go down the garden in the greenhouse and smoke, you know. And um, so he knocked on the, my mum, quite nonplussed, opened the door, recognised him immediately, of course. And he had some sort of bleary-eyed looking groupies in the van and a couple of the band. I don't remember. I think it was Noel Redding, but I don't remember. And he said, oh, uh, Mrs. McCartney, my name's Jimmy. And she's like, yep, yeah, got it. <laughs> <laughs> got that too, yeah. I think I know that. And uh, he said, uh, Paul gave me, uh, your, your stepson gave me uh, this address and said, if we were ever in the Northwest, you know, we could, uh, we could pop in and see if there's, can, is the room to stay? And is there, you know, can we do some laundry and maybe, you know, get something to eat? And um, so Anne said, well, absolutely, certainly, but here's the deal. Um, I can't have you coming in the house 
smelling like, you know, what we now know is a pot farm. So she said, nothing personal, but um, here's a bunch of towels and here's some uh, bathrobes and here's a, so if you wouldn't mind getting changed, put that all on, leave that all in these bags on the front porch and I'll do your laundry and then come on in and I'll put the kettle on. So she made Jimmy Hendrix oh, wow. drip down to his civvies on the front porch and put his filthy laundry in a trash bag before she let him in the house because he was stinking apart and she didn't want me to smell it. What a story. Uh, only Ange would make Jimi Hendrix change his clothes for he's let in the house. you must have some wonderful memories of those days yeah i mean i remember coming downstairs one sunday morning to see all these um feet and white tights and little patent leather shoes sticking out from under the dining table grown-ups all passed out from the night before and um you know it was auntie dusty springfield and her special friend come up to the house and party and crash out and mm. oh we'll cut along John Baldry and uh, Julie Driscoll and Rod Stewart would come and stay and you know it was just a crazy in and out house just another day just another day yeah I don't want to sing more because we'll get done for copyright <laughs> <laughs> now, Paul is considered one if not the greatest songwriter but you also have written songs haven't you I have a couple of hundred of them, yeah. Really? But, um, do you and, enjoy being creative? And when did, did. You write, when did you write your first song? I actually wrote, um, I was fiddling around, I was forced to learn piano because my mum, Ange, was, was and still is on record England's youngest ever ordained piano teacher. She was just shy of her 14th birthday when she became a licentiate of music uh, from the Royal Victoria College of Music in England. She got her piano teaching certificate when she was 13. And so I was forced to learn piano, which I hated scales and theory and notes on a page and all that crap. But um, I was, you know, I'd fiddle around with it. When I was about hmm, probably six or seven, I had some sheet music and um, stop me if you've heard this one, but I had some sheet music and I was absolutely murdering it. And Paul came down and said, shove over on the piano stool. He said, what on earth are you strangling? You know, what are you trying to do? And we picked out the notes together because at that point, he wasn't a great sight reader either. Um, he was more by ear in those days. And um, so we figured this out and it, he said, oh, this is really nice, this melody. What's it called? And I said, it's called Golden Slumbers. And um, it's originally a Thomas Decker 15th century piece the 15th century poet Thomas Decker. And he said, oh, that's great news. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, you know, if I choose to use any bits of this thing called Golden Slumbers, which of course we know he did, he's like, it's public domain. I don't have to pay copyright. <laughs> so that was kind of where it started. I got an understanding. And again, listening to them sit around over Sunday breakfast, you know, talking about the suits and copyright and publishing and all those things. That's where, you know, since 1967, I've understood the inequities of the music business. And um, when I went into it myself, you know, made the best deal I could with BMG, kept my own publishing. I have my own publishing company. I publish all my husband's music. And so you really have to be savvy. There's a lot more information available now that there's this thing called the internet's but in those days, it was 85% for the suits and 15% for the band if they were lucky. You know, a lot of people would, would call the house and get Paul's advice, Michael Jackson being one of them. 
And um, the irony of it is I was Heather, Paul's stepdaughter, and Linda and Paul were at home and um, Michael Jackson would call the house. I suppose this was about 1972. So Michael would have been 14 or 15, I suppose. And Heather would have been 10 or 11 and I was somewhere in the middle. And Michael Jackson would call to chit chat to Heather, you know, just kid to kid in showbiz. And just to make sure everything was on the up and up, I, I would be put in the, uh, on the extension underneath the stairs in the phone booth, the phone cupboard, and just told to listen in to make sure they weren't drifting off into anything silly. And one day Michael starts asking little Heather about, well, you know, Joe Jackson only pays us $40 a week to be in the Jackson five. Do you know, do you know how your how Paul makes so much more money? And she's like, well, I don't know. I'll ask him. So Paul gets on the phone and I sort of overhear this whole conversation about Paul giving Michael Jackson advice about, well, you need to own publishing. You need to buy publishing. Well, the irony is fast forward 25 years later, Michael Jackson winds up owning the Beatles publishing. I was like, yep, he got the memo. I know I was listening in. <laughs> mm-hmm. wow. Shows you he was taking notes. Isn't it? So yeah, off things like that, you know, so my songwriting, um, <laughs> really started, I was probably about 11 or 12 and I started composing with, oh no, you know what, the first thing, I was nine and I wrote a piece for brass, for trumpet, um, trumpets, trombone and something else for the um, investiture of the Prince of Wales in 1969 and I sent the, the music all written out and um, it was called Three Feathers and I sent it to the Prince of Wales. And of course they didn't play it at the investiture, but I composed a piece of music for that and got a very lovely letter back from Buckingham Palace, which I still have today. <laughs> and then in about 71-ish, probably, we went up to um, Mull of Kintyre to see Paul and Linda and the band Wings were rehearsing up there in the garage. And um, Danny Sywell was out one day. I think he had a sore throat or something. So I got to fiddle around on the drums and then Linda went in to cook lunch and I was fiddling around on the piano and I started this sort of like four chord riff thing, which wound up, unfortunately I never got, you know, didn't know about writer credit in those days, but it wound up being the opening chords of wildlife uh, on the, on the wings wildlife album. So I've sort of always dabbled around it. And then when I moved to, Los Angeles in the early 80s, I met a great collaborating songwriting partner called Barry Coffing that I'm still friends with to this day. And we wrote a bunch of songs, one of which was covered by Randy Crawford called Cigarette in the Rain, which we got a bunch of gold albums for. And it's, you know, I was on Spotify the other day and I thought, I'm going to do a bit of ego surfing. I'm going to see if Cigarette in the Rain... My, my song that I co-wrote that I wrote the lyrics that are basically about Julian and John Lennon's relationship. It's everybody thinks it's a love song, but it's not. It's about the sudden end of a relationship. I go look it up on Spotify and there's 54 cover tunes of it. 54 bands of cover. And I've not seen a penny. No. Not a dime. And I'm like, all right. Mm-hmm. So I looked into it. And of course, to go Spotify pays, you know, 0. 0.0000, whatever, infinitesimal number per stream. So in order to go try and find out how much money Spotify in Sweden, good luck getting it, owes me, I'd have to hire a Beverly Hills lawyer who would charge me $600 an hour. So I don't think I'm going to bother. No, Uh, no, I don't think we'll go down that one. (laughs) Yeah, crazy, isn't it? So yeah, no, I I wrote um, my own album, which was released on uh, Jupiter BMG in Germany. I co-wrote that with various people, including Andreas Slavik, who's a brilliant Austrian composer. 
and my husband and I write songs together. He's actually in the middle of releasing on November the 11th, he will release the second of his trilogy of his band project called Geist, which is like Zeitgeist. Yeah. Geist music with a K because he's German. Yeah, no, I still, I still, I still sing background uh, vocals for friends and people who want, you know, a special sort of cloud-like uh, Sade sounding twist on their background vocals. I'll, we've got a studio here at the house and um, knockout music was still very involved. Did you always want to be a performer because you were a pop sensation in Russia? Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I sort of, when you grow up and it's the family business, like, yeah. You know, if you if your mum and dad are doctors, you probably go to medical school or if they own a restaurant, you probably want to be a pastry chef. And so I had, you know, Jim Max Band, my dad's band in the 1920s. He was a musician and my mum was a music teacher. My Aunt Joan, my late Auntie Joan was a champion ballroom dancer. My Aunt May was a ballerina. And then I got married into this family and Mike McGear, who is a crazy uber, uber talented person who was, you know, one of the founding members of Scaffold. Uh, and then this bloke and the, this left-handed one in the Beagles. So, you know, was I really going to go and be a, an orthodontist? Probably not. No, mm. <laughs> no, probably not. As you say, you know, I went to ballet school and I went yeah. to, I, was, I became a choreographer and I'm not a singer, but I can, I can carry a tune in a bucket and I'm a pretty okay lyricist. And I used to be able to do, you know, backflips off a drum riser straight into the splits. Um, so yeah, go with what you know, right? Absolutely. Now, looking back, did Beatlemania surprise you? Did you ever think, what's all this fuss about? And then you... Yeah, kind of. And then you had this crush, as millions of us did, on David Cassidy. Could you see the parallels? Um, eventually, but I always, you know, because obviously Paul is 18, Paul and the boys were 18, 19, 20 years older than me. So when I was five, my so-called uncle John Lennon would be 25 and he was an old man. Right. So I never got the whole girly crush thing because, you know, I'm five. I've got no hormones. They're just old men who come to visit and leave their cups and saucers, you know, in the living room. And their extra loads of laundry. So I never really got the fan worship thing until that fateful day. Come on now, let's meet everybody. And I was like glued, gut glued. I remember where I was. I was on the green living room carpet, belly down on my elbows, what I'd heard about this thing. And uh, Tony Barrow, who was the, what was the Beatles publicist, was also David's PR guy. Yeah. But he, he said to Ange, oh, I said, he said, there's a series coming on from America. I think Ruth will enjoy it, you know, and the, this kid, David, he's, he's about 19 and, you know, he looks a bit girly. He's got long hair and everything, but you know, that's still carried through for me to this day. My husband's got shoulder length hair. <laughs> I actually only stop in the street and turn my head around for guys with long hair. <laughs> I'm still stuck on Keith Partridge. It's really weird. Yeah. How, how big a fan were you? Well, um, you know, he, he's before he got in his fifties and got Invisalign, he had one tooth that stuck out. Right? He had that sticky out tooth. So I thought it would be a good idea that if I ever ran into him, which I subsequently did, to have a talking point to say, oh, look, our teeth are the same. So I spent every night for about a year with either a pencil or the handle of a teaspoon in bed, forcing my, t- my perfectly straight tooth out of alignment, <laughs> which I still have. And he corrected his before he died. I'm like, you booger. <laughs> it's a funny thing. When I first saw his a photograph of him smiling, yeah, I was what thirteen, 
and I had a loose tooth at the front. At the front, oh, you know what it's like. You try to push it out by pushing mm-hmm. it, pushing your tongue behind it. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit loose, and so it would stick out occasionally and, until it came out. Mm-hmm. But when I saw that he had these two teeth that were slightly uh, crooked, crooked. Yeah. I, my first thought was, "Oh, bless him! He's got two two bad teeth, just like me." Oh, that's cute. That's funny. <laughs> Oh no! I, when when I actually did eventually meet him for the first time in person, embarrassingly enough, like oh, you're on my cousin's wallpaper. <laughs> um, the whole conversation included the tooth thing, which was pretty crazy. I think he thought he was trapped in an elevator with a complete mad woman. How, how did that first meeting come about? Well, I had I was working as a um, a freelance truck driver and film crew worker person in Hollywood. And I was in between projects. I was working for a commercial production company called Paisley Productions. And, you know, it's project to project, just like life is now. And uh, I thought, you know, I've had a pretty good week last week. Three of the shoots ran late. I'm getting an overtime check. I'm going to go into Beverly Hills. I'm going to get all dressed up, put my face on. I'm going to actually have a day off and go into Neiman Marcus and find a big floppy sun hat for a ridiculous amount of money. Then I'm going to go across the street to the hotel rodeo and buy myself a glass of champagne and go home. So I was in the middle of all of that, heading up to the top floor to the millinery department and the floor, the elevator opened on the second floor and in steps David Bruce Cassidy. Mm. And there I am alone in, in a lift. And I thought, should I push the stop button? <laughs> <laughs> I've got so much to say to him. And of course, you know, open mouth insert foot. I went, Oh, David Bruce, David Bruce Cassidy, born, you know, 12th of April, 1950. Your social security number is blah, 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 blah. Your license plate on your Corvette is SXY641. But, and he's like, all of a sudden he's backed up against the wall. And I had six inch heels on. So I had a good, you know, few inches on him because we we're, were the same height and stocking feet. He's like five, nine. And I'm towering over him. And he's like, oh, well, nice to meet you. And I'm like, no, 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 you, you signed a an autographed picture to me. Um, Ruth Aarons was your agent. William Morris was your thing. My, my, my stepbrother rang you. You were staying at the Dorchester and you hung up the phone on him. He's like, wait, you're not McCartney. And I went, yeah. He's like, oh my God, I remember signing that because some bloke rings me up and pretends to be Paul McCartney. And turned out it was. I said, well, I've got the picture still stuck on my fridge in my house in North Hollywood. Do you want to come home and see it? And he's like, all right. <laughs> so, yeah. Took him home for lunch to meet mum and there was the picture which is still hanging on my wall and it is inscribed to Ruth, be happy and stay free. <laughs> wow. So that was how we stuck yeah. up a friendship and he was like just, you know, an absolute sweetheart and then whenever he was in town, he would, you know, I was the shoulder he would cry on and he would come over to the house and cook him all his favourite things. And Was he a good friend? Oh God, yes. He would do... Once you were his friend, he would, yeah, defend you to the death. It's that old, you know, New Jersey Irish boy in him. Yeah. Very, very loyal chap. Yeah. Lovely boy. Just such a tragedy. I can't believe we're talking about him in the past tense still. I still dream about him. I still was sitting in Vegas with Sue and my husband Martin having dinner at the Rio, or we're in a meeting with WH Smith discussing his merchandise or 
we're running his fan club or, you know, we built his first website and all of that stuff. So, yeah, yeah we go back, I think it was, what would it be? 1980 something. I never remember the year when we met and struck up the friendship, but he just was gobsmacked to walk into a house in North Hollywood and they're stuck on the fridge with six cheesy magnets is a picture that he signed in 1972. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? That story that, that you were relating just now, can you um, enlighten anyone who's not familiar with it? The story of when Paul wanted to talk to David when he was in London. Yeah. So Paul was home and, and um, David was in, in England touring and I'd seen pictures in the paper with David Bridger, the Arista A&R gentleman. Yeah. And they had somewhere in there, it said, David, who is staying at the Dorchester. So I was like, aha, I know where he's staying. So of course I, like every other te- a teenage or 12 year old girl, rang the, rang the switchboard and asked for him. And no go. Well, I'm sorry, don't know. David Cassidy's not staying here. Of course, he had an alias, right? And so I nagged the living daylights out of Paul, who made some calls to his office in London, who made some calls to, I guess, Ruth Aaron's office in Beverly Hills to find out his alias, which anybody really could have guessed. It was David Jackson, David Jack's son. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> <laughs> So then I said, oh, ring him up, ring him up, ring him up before he checks out, before he goes back to America. So, of course, Paul rings through to the Dorchester and says, yeah, Mr. David Jackson, please. I believe he's in, you know, the so-and-so suite. He got all the information. So Paul gets through and I'm listening on the extension, hand over the phone, all bated breath. (laughs) And um, Paul gets through and he said, David answers with, hello? Like, who the hell's got this number, you know? and Paul was all nervous. He's like, oh, hello, is this David um, um, Bruce um, um, Jackson? And he's like, who wants to know? And he said, this is Paul McCartney. And David said, yeah, and this is the effing Duke of Edinburgh. And I'm up on it. He didn't believe it. <laughs> so I was like, please, Paul, ring him back, ring him back, ring him back. And he's like, no, 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 no. He's, not, he's never going to believe it's me. I'm like, oh, please, 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 ring him back. So he got through again. And um, this time he's like, no, 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 it's really me. And, you know, they had a quick conversation. And knowing David later, he said he just, he collapsed on the couch going, there's a beetle ringing me. Why? What have I done? Have I done something wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Paul said, no, he said, my kid sister's a mad fan and blah, blah, blah. Would you sign a thing and I'll give you the address in Haswell? Well, about three days later, um, the up-to-date, album arrived the postcard album arrived the christmas card album arrived the oh. 8 by 10 arrived the whole bloody all signed i've still got them and i mean so, david was a huge admirer of paul yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. Work. which um, you know fast forward to the mid 80s um of course that was the conversation it's like wait 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 you're that mccartney kid <laughs> so he wanted the reason he came home and let me make him lunch and meet my mother was because he wanted to ask his beetle questions <laughs> of course so it was a fair, fair trade is no robbery so you you knew him for some time as a as a family friend before you oh, yeah. built his first website yeah so we moved to um yeah we were mates for i don't know 10 12 years and then we lost everything in the northridge earthquake in 1994 and we moved to nashville because there was good songwriting jobs there and my husband was you know able to 
to find my, he was then my boyfriend Martin who is now my husband was able to find some work there my mum got a job for the Tennessee newspaper as a secretary we got some little publishing deals and so Nashville seemed like a place to go because half of LA's exodus was to Nashville Tennessee we settled down there and that's where we discovered the internet through an Australian legendary musician friend of ours called Brian Cadd and I discovered Yahoo and I checked out 22 books from the Nashville Davidson County Library System on this thing called HTML that nobody had ever heard of. <laughs> and Martin and I locked ourselves in the house and ate way too much Papa John's pizza for about a month, learned code. And then I just rang all my mates and said, you need a dot com, you need a website. What's the internet? What's a website? I'm like, no, it's a web page. It's a website. Well, what's one of those? I'm like, give me 50 bucks to get your domain name. Just sit back and relax. So um, we bought domain names for all kinds of people, including David. He gave me a little budget. We built that crazy ass davidcassidy.com first website with them. You know, then we could use message boards and then you could collect database information. And then we built iFans and started sending out newsletters. And he was the first reverse marketing um, case that we did by which he, he rang me one day. He said, I'm going to do a, a greatest hits album. And um, what do you think I should put on it? And I said, well, let's ask the thousands of fans emails addresses. We've got what they think you should put on it. And he's like, Oh, that's a good idea. So we built a little um, checkbox survey page. I mean, survey monkey didn't exist. Google didn't exist. This is like 1998. And we polled the fans and they came back with the favorite, you know, 12 songs. And then we said, if you'd like to send in a check, because again, there was no PayPal. There was no way to take a credit card over the internet. Send a check, a stamped addressed envelope. You'll get the album when it's ready and prepay. And so he raised so much money from the fan base pre-orders that he was able to pay for the studio and the musicians and all of that stuff without going out of pocket because he already knew that he was going to pre-sell this number of CDs. That's how that all came about. And then we've, we've, we've you know, used that exact polling and uh, reverse psychology, ask the customers. See, John Lennon used to say this. He, they used to say, he used to say, you know, God, if we could only ask the customers, because he never called them fans, if you only ask the customers what, what they would want us to sing on the next tour or what they think we should wear. You know, we'd, we'd keep having to guess, but if we could just ask them, wouldn't that be smart? So he, he sort of pre-invented the internet polling system before, before in the 60s, before there was, I mean, there was practically, you know, some people still had outdoor toilets. And, then, and there's John going, you know, if we could poll the customers. <laughs> so in, in many ways, do you look back and think of the way that you and your mum looked after the fans, that you learned a lot from, from that? Experience. Oh, God, yeah. We, I used, absolutely, I used a lot of that wisdom learned and questions asked and unanswered by people like John Lennon going, if only we could have polled the customers to then, you know, keeping that in mind for then David saying, what do you think I should put on my greatest hits album? And I'm like, well, you know, I think Echo Valley 26809 Brown Eyes and Point Me in the Direction of Albuquerque, but I'm just one person. Let's, let's ask the thousands of people who want to hear from you. Yeah, you know, had it not been for John Lennon positing that problem, I probably wouldn't have had the thought to suggest 20 years later to David Cassidy. So was it a result of all that good feedback that you received that your iFans site evolved? Yes. I mean, iFans needs needs a lot of updating now because when Microsoft bought Constant Contact, they threw $10 million at it, which I don't have to spare this month. Um, iFans still, we still have 6.4 million double opted in 
email addresses and data of uh, music fans of all genres that have signed up for our 1400 members databases, which is completely private, never shared, all of that stuff. So we were built up and running in 98. And I don't think Constant Contact came around for another five or six years after that. But yeah, that was the way that we managed because we had websites for Leanne Rhymes, Clint Black, Andrew Gold, uh, Fleetwood Mac for a short period of time, Leanne Rhymes. So we had so much incoming email. I'm like, there has got to be a way to store this in a database. I cut my email boxes exploding every 10 minutes. And so that's, we... Final, FileMaker Pro was an application that you could publish databases to the internet. And then based on that, in MySQL PHP, this brilliant kid called Darby from Omaha, and my husband and I um, developed iFans. And it's, it's still working to this day. I just don't sign a lot of people to it because it's very manual. You have to have sort of technical knowledge. But we still use it for, you know, Steve Tyrell, Paul Abdul still got her database stored in there, Roseanne Barr, John Cleese. We would get a lot of emails into the website. And the special ones I would forward to his private account in those days. And um, yeah, no, he, he was good like that. He really, really loved his fans. I just can't fathom why he didn't really understand how much he was loved. You know, everybody says this. When I was putting all these memories together, the regular theme that came up time and time again, uh, even from Richie Furet, who gave yep. a wonderful interview and spoke so eloquently about the time he spent working with him and just relaxing around his Laurel Canyon home with him. He said, I do think he was one of the most underrated singers. Absolutely. Everyone has said this, even those who, who met him as fans or musicians, actors, they all said, I don't know if he ever really grasped how much we loved him. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we, you can, I'm not a psychoanalyst and I don't even play one on TV, but I think it was the whole abandonment from Jack and Evelyn. You know, I got to know his mum when, when he and, when David and Sue moved to Vegas, he would have me take his mum, Evelyn, to lunch from time to time, just to keep an eye on her. She was starting to lose the plot a little bit and he was worried, but they didn't really have confirmation that she had dementia. And so I would drive over to Sherman Oaks and she loved this this place on Ventura Boulevard called La Frite. And so we used to meet there and have a little French lunch and just gossip that or Casa Vega. And so I got to know his mum, you know, pretty well. And um, she would talk about just the utter shock that David went through when he found out that this word divorce had descended on their family and that his dad had Shirley and another life. I think it, it just hit him like a ton of bricks. And I think he never, ever got over the abandonment and the fear of not trusting love because, you know, he knew his dad loved him. There's no question about it. But to be able to be duplicitous, still declare love and have another life miles away that David really didn't know anything about. I think it became a, a trust issue. Not, of course, not with, with Sue or Bo or Katie, but it all goes back to um, childhood. And I think just when he, you know, found out that his mum was uh, divorced and there was this whole another Cassidy life, um, I think it just shocked him to the core. And I think it just created a scar like his gallbladder scar that never went away. That's just my opinion. I mean, I don't, no, you know, I think, I only... 
No, I don't know that. I'm not stating it as a fact, but knowing no. him and some members of the family as I do, um, I think it's just something he never got over. And so I think close, intimate and family love, of course, he trusted. But people who were not in his inner, inner, inner circle, there was some kind of disconnect. Well, I know they love me, but do they really love me? Do you know yes. what I mean? Yes, because nobody wants to be rejected constantly through, throughout their, their lives. And I, there seemed to be a recurring theme. He would be rejected. As uh, an actor, every, every audition you go to and don't get is a rejection. Rejected as a musician. Yep. Well, I mean, and also, you know, he was a really amazing, uh, accomplished musician, performer, actor. Oh, my God. Blood Brothers? I mean, just like... Tony winning performance stuff, but he was never honored. When you when when you listen to the vocal on Bally High, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! I mean, just yeah. this is like Bobby Darren time. Yeah. But he never really, apart from us screaming hormonal teenagers, he never really got the industry accolades I think he deserved. No, absolutely. So many people in in the stories in my book say exactly the same thing. I I would have loved to. Did you ever see a movie? Um, called One Hour Photo, starring Robin Williams, where Robin Williams yes. played this really yes. creepy guy. Mm. When that came out, I said to David, why don't you kick your acting agent in the guts and go after some kind of creepy, scary, almost the, you know, the murderer in One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest that puts the lotion in the basket? Because I said, people think of you as this happy-go-lucky Keith Partridge, but I've seen you countless times in Blood Brothers, and it's it's mind boggling the depth that he could go to and what, what he was doing mm. that he told me was he was pulling out the pain from his childhood and his teenage years. Mm. And he was able to tap into that as an actor. And I used to say to him, God, please go do a horror movie or some scary roles or play a murderer on something. Would you? And he's yes. like, Oh, they wouldn't ever accept me as that. I'm always going to be Keith Partridge. And I'm like, dude, I think you're wrong. <laughs> but, but you see, isn't that a reflection of the rejection yep. as well? If I go for that, and I really want I'm to not, do that, but I get yeah. rejected. I'm not going to get it. Yeah. Oh, that's going to hurt him again. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he always took the, the selfless path of continuing to do what the fans wanted him to do, which probably speaks to why he wanted to drown out his reality. And Did he ever talk to you about how much of an influence Paul and, uh, and the others had been on, on his music career? Yeah, you know, I mean, just peripherally, um, at the beginning, when we first met in the 80s, that was sort of a crux of the conversation so that there was, I think, an understanding of, of trust and privacy between us as mates that I grew up around this whirlwind called the Beatles, so I understood his whirlwind and I knew that some things could be shared and some things go to the grave. Um, and so I think that was the bond that really, you know, turned us into mates because of talking about, you know, the Beatles. And it was more about well, what did they do when so-and-so and their, you know, their experiences and what was it like inside their bubble? I think he was trying to get a sense of, is what happened to me normal, usual, unusual, unsur you know, unsurpassed, unprecedented? And I used to say to him, no, you know what? I was, teenage girls are crazy. That's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then you look at, you know, One Direction and yeah. Backstreet Boys and, you know, K-pop and all that. It's still going on. It's just, I mean, it started with Rudolph Valentino and then it was, you know, Elvis and then, you know, Frank Sinatra and all of that. It's been ever thus. And I think that's what the music industry relies on. 
um, is that, you know, and now, of course, they're after the Snapchatters and the TikTokers. But I think, it, you know, I think that was always the thing. And I think that gave him comfort to know that he wasn't the only one where girls tried to smuggle themselves to his room in a laundry basket. He wasn't the freak of nature that this had happened to. I think that gave him some comfort. There was something special about him, though. There was an aura around him. I get, I get it, and that's, that's always the it that Simon Cowell is looking for. Either got it or you haven't. Yeah. And he had plenty of it. And they didn't really have to sell it to us because we bought into it before he became an international superstar. It was, right, but it was, I mean, it was beautifully corporately packaged by Columbia oh. Pictures, you know. Hmm. They knew that there had to be the cute little funny redhead Danny Bonaducci one. And then there had to be a sort of a teenage girl, older sister foil so that, you know, if I'm 12, if I've got an 18 year old older sister, she's going to identify with Laurie Partridge and her, her hair and her fashions. And, you know, it was, uh, they looked very closely at the Brady Bunch and just put a, a band in front of them, basically. Yes. You know, it was, it, as you think about packaging the monkeys and the Brady Bunch and the Partridge family, that was just, the time and the pop culture what entertainment dictated mm. but imagine imagine david's shock finding out a he's got the part he hasn't been rejected and b the woman playing his mother is his actual stepmother yes. good <laughs> god what are the odds actually when david turned 50 we had a party for him backstage in vegas i got a call at the in the hotel i was staying at the hotel to help sort of organize it and the merchandise needed a meet and greet for some of the fans and i got a call in the uh, room one afternoon saying um hi this is you probably never heard of me um but i'd like to come and surprise david tonight i've got i bought my tickets god bless him um but i would need to be on the backstage list my name's dave madden and i went reuben kincaid is here <laughs> So yeah, David, uh, Dave Madden showed up for David's birthday and we had, I had, we had, Sue had a big cake made with horses and, you know, stuff on it, very horsey cake. And it was great. It was really, it was a nice surprise for David. And I'm like, David, your manager's here. Do we have an next, he's like, manager, what do you mean manager? <laughs> My manager's here. What do you mean? And in walks Reuben Kincaid. It was great. Oh, what a magic moment. Yeah. I have a photograph of it somewhere. Did Paul ever talk to you about what he thought of David and, and his music. Yeah, he loved, I mean, he was, he was like, oh my God, that poor kid, I know what he's going through. He's getting it done, you know. Mm. But what I don't think any of us realized at the time was that Monday to Friday, he was working on the lot in North Hollywood shooting the show. And then he was on a plane doing shows. And then he was on a plane back and seven o'clock Monday morning, he'd have to report for the set. Yeah. How the hell do you do that? Did you ever see him live? Oh yeah, absolutely. Main Road Football Ground in Manchester was the first one. Tony Barrow got me some tickets and we, we had a, a backstage pass and I was going to finally meet him. And the chaos was so bad and girls passing out and everything that they ran him off the pitch to a helicopter and took him straight to London. So there was no backstage meet and greet. Oh. I went home crying. I took my cousin, Liz Harris. We'd driven out and my mum drove us from Liverpool and we all just went to some local, I don't even remember the restaurant, like a Nando's type place. And we just, poor Angie's sitting there with a table full of tear, tearful teenagers. <laughs> we were about 14 because the, uh, the chaos that ensued forced the cancellation of the meet and greet and he got whisked back to London. Crazy, crazy days. Well, the, the reason I asked about Paul's opinion of him was that David covered Tomorrow from the Wildlife album. Mm -hmm. And Paul said that he had taken the song to its full potential. I think that Paul probably, and I, again, I can't 
claim it but Paul probably became more vividly aware of David because of me and my you know nagging and would be definitely listening in with a positive ear in fact they became you know they they stayed in touch when um in 76 just right after my dad died Paul went to Paris to rehearse Wings and David was there and got to sound check and you know got to hang out and watch a wings sound check and rehearsal and everything that he told me all about so yeah i mean they you know they stayed in touch and i think i think paul probably had again you know just my thought but an empathy for him as a musician not being heard over the screens i mean the beatles were very accomplished musicians by the time they did all their touring and nobody could hear what they were playing they might as well not have plugged in or rehearsed or tuned up because of the screaming no, that, that was where I actually first met. The, the night that the meet and greet got cancelled, I did get to meet Henry Diltz, and we're still in touch. So that's, that's a good thing that came out of that. Right. And then, of course, that was the night I was introduced to Kim Carnes. She was in the band. It was an amazing band. And then uh, the Mad Tad, Henry, the, Henry Diltz, the incredible photographer, yeah. um, he came out. They did Please Please Me that night, and he played the, uh, the harmonica part. You know, obviously, as artists and songwriters and touring people and musicians they would have a kindred spirit but i think that would be deepened by the fact that they'd just been screamed at for a decade what, so. what is your your lasting memory of david oh just a, a sweet almost permanently exhausted smiley guy who probably would have been just as happy being a horse jockey <laughs> <laughs> loved his horses he loved his fans and i think he just um i don't know he never took that leap of faith into a different part of his acting career. And I used to nag the crap out of him. But I think, again, you're right. It's just the fear of rejection because he'd been through so much of it. But he, he literally was in service of his fans in the industry until he couldn't do it anymore. You know, I mean, I was glad that, you know, there'd been some ups and downs with the family or whatever. But Sue told me that they were all together at the end around his bedside and he did open his eyes and see everyone so it was yeah. just the saddest day Ruth I don't know about you oh my god I was because Joanne Gaffin texted me about 10 days before and said you're going to hear some being taken into hospital news you know hold your breath I knew for quite a while and it was you know it was around Thanksgiving and uh, it was just just awful I mean there have been so many lovely tributes to him since yeah but it just left this, it left a hole and with him went your youth. Yep, absolutely. No, I, I, I have a lot more empathy now with John Lennon fans who are still devastated about what happened to John at 40 years old. I mean, I was devastated because obviously I loved the man. Yeah. But, you know, I was, I don't know, what was I, 20, 21 or 22, but there were people who had, you know, grown up with him who were his age and compatriots. And still they gather, you know, Strawberry Field and outside the Dakota as well they should. No, there should be a monument. I agree. And, and people like you writing amazing books and keeping up the good work and spending an hour with me to sort of, you know, remind people of just how great the man was. Yeah, there definitely should be a tribute. Yes. You know what, Louise? He's always in our hearts, though. Oh, heavens, yes. Well, this um, has been a delight getting to reconnect with you after all these years. Well, it's, it's been wonderful, Ruth. Now, tell me, because I, I, I know all about Angie's tea, yes. uh, etc. Did David like a good cup of tea? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. He, uh -huh. was, he spent so much time in England, he would, he would love his tea, especially for his throat, you know, as a singer. Yeah. Tea is better than coffee, for sure. I've only started drinking tea in about the last two years. Call I, yourself an Englishwoman? 
I know. It's shameful. It's, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think it's because when I was growing up, we didn't have tea bags and it was loose tea. And was too much of a pain. Those tea leaves in a mouthful. So, yeah. Or you could read them and, you know, find out your future. My grandmother yes. used to read tea leaves. My, yeah, my grandmother did too. My granny was the seventh daughter of a seventh daughter and she was <gasps> born with a cowl over her head. My goodness. And, uh, she was a bit of a witch, already. The night I was seven years old, I broke my leg, went to the beach with a friend, fell, fell off a wall, broke my leg in, I think, 11 places, uh, taken to hospital, patched up, brought home by the police because I wouldn't tell anybody my phone number because I'd always been told, if anybody asks for your phone number, don't give it to them because they all, all they want to do is ring Paul. And mm. um, I was late home and Mrs. Adams didn't bring, Julie Adams' mum didn't bring me home. And um, the police got in touch with Ange and the ambulance and blah, 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 brought me home and I had a big cast on my leg. And it was just in time to call Nanny to say goodnight at half past seven. And nobody was going to tell her because she was an old lady and we didn't want to stress her out. And she picked up the phone. I said, hi, Nanny, it's Ruth, just calling to say goodnight. And she's like, something's happened to you, hasn't it? You've had an accident. It's your leg. It's your right leg. She just knew over the phone. <laughs> yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. She was she was the woman for whom Blackbird singing in the dead of night was dedicated. Yes. Right. Read it. Read it all in my mother's yeah. book. Your mother should know. Da da. I will. I Black will. Black. Mm. Yeah. What has been the biggest lesson you've learned in life? Oh my God, I'm still learning every single day. But just trust your gut instinct. First impressions. Mm-hmm. If you meet somebody and they don't smell right, I don't mean physically. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's not that they haven't had a shower, but if just if there's any little red flags or there's something off, never let them lull you into a false sense of security into changing your mind. Going, oh, she's a great, no, he's a great guy, because that is a con con man or woman's stock in trade, is throwing you off the scent. So I think probably if I had to pick one, it would be trust your gut. Your first instinct is never wrong. Right. I wouldn't say seldom. I would say never. Okay. Sound advice. And what would you like David's legacy to be? Oh, well, I think, you know, Bo and Katie are beautiful and they're doing their, you know, artistic, amazing work with the talents that they got from their dad and their granddad and their grandmothers. And um, I think his legacy is just what he would probably want it to be is just smile when you think of him, just love and happiness and youth and eternal euphoria, you know. You often just see his smiling face, do you? What's your lasting memory of, of him as a friend? Um, one of the nights he rang me from somewhere and he'd had, smartly enough, he said, I've had, I think I've had too many drinks to drive home. Are you and I was at work on Sunset and Gower and he caught me leaving and he said, I'm at the, um, gosh, what was it called? That Swiss place on Sunset and oh, the Smorgasbord or something like that it was called. And he said, come and meet me for a drink. I said, well, haven't you had too many? He said, yeah, but if you're going to drive me home <laughs> and you haven't had one, you can have one. So I went and picked him up and he left his car there. And um, as I was driving him home in my Oldsmobile Delta 88 convertible on a balmy evening up the 405, he stood up in the front seat, hanging onto the top of the windscreen and started belting, I think I love you at the top of his lungs. <laughs> He'd had a few, but you know, oh, okay. no, he was, he was happy. He was in a good place and he knew he could ring his mate for a ride home. So there you go. <laughs> oh, what a good friend you were. Oh, we were. Yeah, I loved him. I still do. Oh, Ruth, it's been a delight speaking to you. Absolutely. Likewise. Wonderful. Thank you very much. <laughs>